you like conversation on a variety of topics? Feel like no one wants to talk about the things that interest you? Tired of only hearing the same political, sports, or catastrophe talk? Yeah, we feel that way too. Join two high-functioning geeks as they discuss just about anything under the sun. We can't tell you what we'll be talking about each week because we don't know where our brains will take us. It will be an interesting conversation, though, so hang on and join us. Here comes the Relentless Geekery. Yeah, and we've talked about VPNs, how great they are for security, how they help out with, but there's a lot of things they really break. Exactly. So that's why I figured I would take that out of the stream here, you and I talking and whatever else it's, I'll turn, what I have to do is remember, of course, to turn it back on before, hey, let's go online banking and investing. That's right. I, I really have a, I don't know how much I really needed at home because I have my firewall in place. I have a whole, the usual cascade of important things to make sure that I'm not exposed to the world. Where I really need it, of course, is mostly when I'm on my phone or on the laptop when I'm out of town in a, a unsecured Wi-Fi connection and all that kind of stuff. And so I'll get better about maybe not worrying about it as much as at home. Biggest things besides this thing, maybe it really will be that Zencaster will be improved. I've noticed that for all kinds of streaming services, they're already very suspicious about, hey, are you coming in from the wrong zone and you really shouldn't be able to see this content? And when what whatever the, I use ExpressVPN, whatever they have as their servers around the place. Usually when I'm here in Cleveland, there's nothing super close to Cleveland. So I connect via New Jersey, Washington, DC, New York, and who knows what that's still in the United States. So you'd think I'd still be in probably like zone three or whatever else it might be, but anything where they can't identify an an IP address that looks like it's connected to an AT&T server or something like that, they, I think, have some suspicions in place. And so Often when I use Google to search things now, it throws up a verify, one of the little captures where I have to say, show me all the staircases or whatever. Like that's their way of saying whatever I look like to them, it's suspicious. And that's a super good point <laughs> because VPNs are getting pushed a bit more and we've talked about them. And like you said, if you're doing things like banking or online transactions, it's not bad to have. but it video especially is very affected by it because what's happening is it goes to your router and it goes to a server in Cleveland. And then instead of where your Netflix or Zencaster, it then goes to New Jersey and then it goes to, so you're adding jumps and hops to it. And you know, that's the kind of stuff that I don't know. What does it look like to the outside secure world? It looks like the dark web. It looks like you're using multiple relays to make sure that you obscure the, and and it, there, it's not like what we're doing is uncommon. There's all kinds of countries all over the world that you really want to make sure you do obscure because otherwise the secret police come and visit you. you know what I mean, things like online gaming, Steam or Xbox, they mm-hmm. recommend turning it off because it adds a lot to the lag and the ping, which really affects gaming. Again, for all the great things it can do, there's things that hurts and hampers. Yeah, I will say this. I don't like to implement these things without just, let's see what happens. I recently did a, a speed test. You know, I have AT&T Fiber, and with the VPN and without, it was still like 966, 968. In terms of out of my gig, I'm way high up. 
with right. their speed test. However, it judges both upload and download. I was still doing really fine. And what, what is two out of 960, 0.02% or something like that, hope I didn't drop a zero, didn't seem to be, wow, I've been cut in half or anything like right. that. We'll see. It's bring not so it much your speed as it might be what... I'm sorry. I started bringing back up the gaming, though. The upload-download mm-hmm. isn't the only number. That ping number, is the latency is a little different than just the upload-download. You may get fast upload-download speeds, but it may be taking half a second longer to talk to get that. So for That's gaming, right. it's very sensitive for that lag and that ping. Right, because it's very chatty. Instead of being yeah. start a file transfer and then sit back, it's always talking back and forth. And I think I've noticed that. I whatever i don't know i still play diablo and i've noticed that it gets stuttery because it really is always talking and always saving things to the server and always tapping the server for what does this next creature look like or whatever a lot of stuff is downloaded to the machine but it still does that and indeed it is affected by it so yeah so things for people to know there's vpn 101 guide (laughs) you're early it's I, i i probably should look for that like someone must have done some studies that say what is the most affected by this and so when it is chunky instead of chatty, it my guess is the VPN affects it less. It's only, it's when it's going back and forth and you're adding that half second, microsecond thing it is, but you do that a thousand times in a conversation, right. yeah, that adds up. And I know I've used a VPN and I actually turned it off because it's this is just way too annoying daily trying to connect to this server to do this work or go to this website and... I don't see the info I need. I got to check the VPN. Or And if I go to 100 websites in a day, do 100 services in a day, mm-hmm. it takes forever to add. And even then, like Netflix, good example. You There isn't a one URL, one IP to add to your VPN to let Netflix bypass it. There's multiple. It depends on time of day. depends on what sun flares are ghosting out in the universe for the moment. <laughs> it's just, and you can't, find them. They don't want to tell you what they all are. That's right. That is a big part. Of, so security by obscurity hardly ever works, but there is something about not giving away exactly how things work either. Let the bad guys have to figure out what you're doing to encrypt or to change end-to-end type things. And so, if you're not using a VPN, you never notice. You don't care. You don't care that in the middle of your show, it cached so much and then switched to a different server to get the next little bit. But yeah. that process of doing that on a VPN, it'll lock up. It'll just sit there sometimes. It won't let it through. And- Error codes don't get through. You know what I mean? I've noticed that. I yeah. just binge watched. Ah, I, I went back and watched True Detective. I the, the, Each of the series was very distinct. They had not only different plots and so forth, but different actors and so forth. And I just... I realized that I didn't remember fully the very first one with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, which really was well done. It was, and, and so I went back and rewatched it. And I noticed that when you watch like three episodes in a row for the fourth, it will often throw an error just out of, okay, you've been watching for a while. And it used to be that it would just say, Hey, are you still there? Let me know. And we'll continue the connection. Now it attempts that can't get through and it throws an error code instead. So I, there really are. I guess some of the things like binge watching might be a characteristic of, is this guy downloading and saving it? And now he's one of those people that's using Netflix inappropriately. Right. (laughs) Okay. And actually I think it was HBO Max. And so that even varies. The fact that 
I don't go only to one place, but I do go to HBO Max and Disney Plus and Netflix and Amazon, and each of them seems to have different standards, different ways of handling and stuff like that. So right. I have to remember, okay, where am I in virtual space and why am I seeing this? Oh, because Amazon doesn't care about that, but Netflix does or whatever it might be. Right, <laughs> exactly. So we got a list of fun things. What do you want to hit on? Let's, so actually, I made a whole big list and it was very like, here's what I've done lately. Why don't we start with, you just had a good gaming night on Saturday night and you, and we, yeah, nothing major stuff we've talked about before. Yeah. We played some gaming, some tough gaming. Let me tell you, if you are looking for a highly competitive, not competitive, I'm a highly difficult cooperative game, probably the most difficult cooperative game setup I've played. Get the DC deck builder with the Crisis expansion and play that. It could be any of the sets of DC deck builder with the Crisis pack. It just ramps up that difficulty. And me and Colin and Ethan were playing it, and it's cooperative. It's completely cooperative. So it's not, you're not even competing for points there. It's we either defeat everything right. and win, or the game kills us. There's a lot of co-op there. It's very difficult. And we were playing it because I have one of those bad habits with Kickstarter. <laughs> wow, I love that game. <laughs> wow, there's a new expansion. Let me get on Kickstarter. I think I mentioned this. Cryptozoic, who does the DC Deck Builder, yeah. they, it's been 10 years. They came out. They've got tons of expansions. They did a Kickstarter a while back. And I was keeping an eye on it, and I'm like, okay, we've got a lot of DC Deck Builder, but Colin said when he moves out, he's taking it. And I'm like, I really like that one. <laughs> I was watching it, and first of all, that attracted me was it's all new artwork for all the sets. I'm like, okay, so that's nice. Okay. Uh, and of course, what are the stretch goals? Every stretch goal is a new set of promo cards or a new expansion that they're going to bring in. Okay. And, all that. and I kept watching. It got down to the last couple of days. Now it got funded like in the first four hours or something like that. Okay. So done. They could have finished right there. I kept watching it. Kept And the number kept climbing. And it's not like it slowed down. It's like people said, oh my God, how much are we getting with it? And more people jumped on. And more people. So I was showing Ethan. He's like, so what's it come with? Because I sank down. I said, I have got to have this. Okay. <laughs> and it's coming next month. And uh, he said, so what all does it get? So I pulled up the webpage and I scrolled. He's like, holy shit. You're oh, getting those were all the expansion packs, all these stretch goals that you were going to. Wow. Okay. Oh my God. It is enough cards and gameplay that I, there's two storage boxes that are coming, just Kickstarter wow. available. And it's 3,500 cards or something like that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it's 10 main sets. 17 mini expansions and then 190 or 200 some promo cards that they're doing and then like a few bonus things here and there like health dials and stuff like that okay. i'm just like it's a st stupid crazy amount but i figured the main sets at 35 to 40 bucks a piece that's already 300 400 this includes all the mini expansions and the promo cards for the same price. I'm like, yeah, that's a chunk of change. That really is. That's like my whole gaming budget for the year, but it's right. everything. You're We're getting, done. it's a, it's 
Funny that we haven't really talked about this before. I really love the world of Kickstarter and Indiegogo and things yeah. like that, exactly in the way you're talking about, because it's a whole different model. It used to be maybe if you were a Medici in Italy and you could commission someone, make me the most beautiful cheruby Jesus that we've ever seen before. And, and now people can do that. They can band together and say, I want this music. I want this game. I, there's things that they can summon into the world. And the fact that the producers have become really good and canny, obviously our, our buddy Ted Sakura with how he's done the continued adventures yeah. of his comic book characters and the smarts of, he knows what it takes to create it. He has a realistic idea. So he never gets, I got all this money, but then I went over budget anyway, or he doesn't have the convincing enough stretch goals and expansions and stuff like that, that people don't think they're getting their money's worth or are getting tired of that. Or yeah. There's become a whole different discipline with, I really can do this talking directly to the fans. And I'll throw this out. Marillion was one of the very first ones to do that. You know, when they used to be, if you were dropped by your major label, you really went into limbo for a while until you found another label thing. And they had enough smart, modern people that they said, in this world of interconnections with fans, we already got a hundred thousand fan list or something. Why don't we see what we can do on our own? Their racket club offerings and all of how they've done their last 10 albums, maybe has been pay us up front. We'll include you in the liner notes for the album. Thank you. Look in the bees for Alan Baltus occasionally and all that kind of stuff. And that's, it's not only how, I don't know, that's so wonderful to have that direct connection. And it's so nice to say whatever the really vampiric studio system that has existed for a long time, a lot of people still dive right into it. There's all manner of, I don't know, people that just sign their lives away, the rights to their music and their, all of it. But there really is another way. If you want to have that little bit of extra risk for a little bit of extra reward, it's worth doing. And I love that. I love the fact that new methods are created based on new technology and stuff Absolutely. like that. It really works that they weren't only a failed experiment. And maybe there were some early failed experiments, but there's other. Yes. I remember there, there's places where people didn't come through or where the entire site just didn't get the magic combination of people who wander around and say, well, what other comic books could I ask to be coming? into the world and yeah more music and more games starter i know a lot of people love it and a lot of people are down on it oh i don't trust it oh, blah, blah. you'll get that everywhere whatever and i understand it though because i was early on kickstarter had only been around a year or two and a favorite author of mine a new author i had discovered was working in conjunction with this comic book company a small company they were creating a graphic novel based on some of his books. And I loved the books. And I'm like, okay, so this is a, a known big guy. He's He went from indie to trad pub to lots of books, not Stephen King level, but still I've seen him in the bookstores. I know yeah. his name. Yeah. So a lot of people jumped on. It was funded. Great. And it was supposed to be out like December. You'll get it. Nothing, nothing, oh nothing. And then come like February, they said, hey, we didn't forget. We're still working out. We're just behind. Sorry about that. Here's a couple pages we've done. Show you what we've got. We're going to offer some more art for everybody as a consolation for us taking so long. And okay. then it was just crickets and crickets. And people were like, hey, what's going on? And they answered said, yeah, we had some things come up, but we are finishing it up. And then that was like six years ago. And wow. they're totally gone. Never heard about it. Lost the money. But that's the only one I've lost money on. All the games I've done have been big name companies, Cryptozoic, AEG, 
with Thunderstone and Hero mm-hmm. Realms. And so companies that already have games, those games are in the store. This is remaster or it's the expansion right. or the track record that you can make that bet with some confidence because, hey, they've come through before. Yeah. And it's funny, you might remember Duke Nukem way before there was Kickstarter and, and Patreon and stuff like yes. that. There was shareware and malware and phantomware, vaporware as it came right. where places said, hey, we'll pay for this version and we're working on version two. And Duke Nukem was one of the ones that like, did it ever come out? Or, you know, that it that, did. It, it did, but it was like 15, 16 years later. Ridiculously late. Did the guy go be a monk in Tibet for a while? What A couple of weeks, a couple of months, even a year late is understandable. Well, Life happens. Almost I forget. Like, there, there was some big name guy, Bezos or Elon Musk, somebody like that bought all of it and pushed it to get out because he was such a big fan. But it sucked for the game. Okay. And that, honestly, that's a danger too. Like when something comes out 15 years later that was using 15 year old technology, nowadays it's like, wow, this is really behind. This is yeah. lame. This is not like whatever. I, when John Karnak uh, and others were working for id Software doing Doom and Quake and stuff like that, it seemed to be that every time they came out with a new game, it was state of the art. It wasn't yeah. just another game using the same engine. They kept absolutely improving that. And maybe that was some part of the delay with them is that. When you're creating that kind of new stuff, it's not fragile, but it sure isn't, hey, we already know what we're doing now. It's just a matter of characters and scenes and stuff like that. No, you're, you're having and, to create the universe. And, uh, jumping over on video games uh, mm-hmm. with this type of thing, it's a big deal nowadays because games have gotten so huge. Not all games. People are discovering you can have a great fun game from a five-person team that only lasts four or five play hours. Every game doesn't have to be 190 hours of Skyrim. And they're <laughs> discovering that because those big games take so long with so many people. It's like a blockbuster movie. We put 100 million into it. We better get back 200, 250 million. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, and, because it's not only the cost, it's the opportunity cost of what all those people could have been doing if they hadn't been so immersed in getting that right. out. I hear you. Right. And on top of that, then you got. The company saying, we need this game to come out third quarter so we can make our money. Okay, it may not be ready third quarter. Doesn't matter. It's coming out. Here's the date. And then you get developers rushing to get the game out. And you get the stuff that happened with Cyberpunk 2077, where it came out and it was like broke. People hated it. Everyone said it sucked. Nobody wanted it. And then they had to come out with a day one patch. And then they had to come out with more fixes to the point now where you get a few people going, yeah, it's a fun game. I enjoy it. But you miss that initial wave of, oh, my God, this is such a great game. Absolutely. And that, that, like, so much what I read about nowadays for movies is what the opening weekend box office is, not is it a good movie or not. <laughs> right. It boggles my mind. Like, did you just put a movie out there to see if you can get a whole bunch of people to see it the first weekend? And then if all the reviews are bad as we made our money. I want to see that it's doing great in the 10th week because word of mouth had it be, hey, you got to go see Quantumania, right. Ant-Man and the Wasp and stuff like that. And so it's funny. I didn't post a review for one of the first, I, I, we saw it Thursday night at seven o'clock. We saw it like literally opening time and stuff like that. And I really loved it, but I just wanted to see how the world treated it because mm-hmm. it's the next phase of the MCU. It's Kang is the next big bad. I, I, 
if anything. So here's my little review. I really liked it. Fantastic special effects, a great cast of characters, but Paul Rudd, for instance, is usually as much as a, a goof off a wiseacre. Part of his, the persona of the character is that he's not really a heroic guy. He got dragged into being a hero and he does things so that he'll impress his daughter, not because he's trying to save the right. world. And so he's wasted in that role. He's always, he's played very well with the tongue in cheek character, the guy that makes the ironic aside while he's fighting and stuff like that. Spider Man way. Maybe all yeah. these characters do that. But, and Evangeline Lee, who plays the Wasp, I can't remember anything memorable that she did. And wow, that for co billing, for being his partner in heroism and stuff like that, she was just, I thought, very wooden. And, and instead, everybody else. Kang was really good. Michael Douglas as Hank Pym, who is the real Ant-Man, if you will, the original Ant-Man. This is the Scott Lang that Paul Rudd plays, who is the guy who actually stole his suit and then became the second Ant-Man. Right. So that kind of stuff. And I might be losing your name. It's not Charlize Theron. It's, oh, she's so beautiful. Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Exactly. She's great as the original Wasp. So I, as you know, the Marvel Universe is continually doing things now, not only with the introduction of the characters, but that they've been through multiple generations and so it's very interesting to see who's good at handing off the mantle and still has some heroism left in them or has they become crotchety old men and women who are like leave me alone i don't feel like saving the universe this it so it's really good i really recommend seeing it and it's i will say this about superhero movies really is better in the big movie house yeah really absolutely the big sound and the big immersion where you're just you're not what looking at your phone you're not paying attention to anything except Let's try to keep track of all the things that are on the screen and what they might mean for this movie as well as the future. Of course, it has the usual great Marvel post-credit scenes and stuff like that where the, I don't know, it's only the week after, so I don't want to have good giveaways. But I think I've talked about this before. One of the, Kang is a longstanding Avengers villain. He was like in Avengers 8. And right. They've really done a good job with, he's not only combated the Avengers, but lots of different characters in the MCU. And his usual power has been that he's a time traveler. And one of the best things I ever saw them do, this is like Avengers, I'm trying to think, maybe 160 or something like that. They had they had a knockdown, drag out battle with Kang, and they win. The Avengers win. But while they're like just barely catching their breath, Kang went away, healed up for six months, and then comes back in like the next minute. And he's going to win just by wearing them down, just by this right. more of attrition of, all those hundred thousand flunkies that I brought with me before I grew a new clone army <laughs> and here's my new army. You guys are still licking your wounds. So there's some aspect of it that they make use of what it's not only that he's got a super powered suit. It's that what can you do if you really can go back in time and I, or just go all around in time. One thing I will say a complaint about the movie is Marvel is now playing fast and loose with different big concepts. Like being in the quantum right. realm doesn't necessarily mean that time goes differently or at least they don't explain why that would be going really big or going really small makes you both cosmic out there and cosmic inside here and then just the what are the relative distances and what does it take to find someone in the quantum realm they were trying to a little bit of they had a macguffin where it's like, we just need a beacon that can find this person in the quantum realm well if it's infinite that's a big ask and yeah. yet i'm good artistic license let's go with that but some of the other things that they do are they've expanded the multiverse so much and in a kind of a contradictory messy way that i why did they have to have the crisis 
the DC crisis and the multiverse crisis. The in, they even use the term incursions in the movie because that's what started to happen in the Marvel universe. And I'm going on and on. It. I hope that they do more with this phase that they keep explaining more of that instead of just saying now we can do whatever we want. So <laughs> right. let's just keep throwing new ideas as to how will Ant-Man deal with this? How will the Black Panther? How will Thor? How will the Fantastic Four? Since they're some of the ones, they're the first ones that went into the microverse, you know, like right. Echo Man and stuff. I'm really looking forward to seeing all of that. And I want it to be for once that it's not just big, like pyrokinetics on the screen, but that there really is an underlying logic and structure to how all this might work. And that maybe one of the ways in which the heroes will have to win is not just big battles and fisticuffs, it's going to be that they're going to have to outthink Kang. Right, <laughs> you know, like right. they had to outthink Thanos, you know what I mean? So we'll so, see. I think Ultron. Anyway. So I liked the movie. A couple things with that. I thought the story was very tight and precise. It does not take place over hours and days. It's literally a couple hours of like time in the movie. And so I, that's not bad. I liked that. I thought the storyline was, I equipped, equated it to the first Thor movie that it said what it needed to say. It moved along, but it didn't stand out with anything that was huge. Not so much. I would say it's one of my favorites so far post end game. I like the Spider-Man movie. And then this one the rest have been in. Eh. I do okay. wish, like you said, they seem to be already closing down a lot of the ex exploration of the quantum world. And the multiverses, because we got Invasion coming up, which I don't think has anything really to do with multiverses so much. So I hope they didn't just say, okay, now we're done. And I did think this Kang should have had a little more cameos and screen time in a few other shows or something before Ant-Man took him out. It was a little too quick for me. Yeah. So as you, maybe he didn't really take no, out because this version of Kang. Exactly. And that's the cool thing, how they tied it into the Loki series. And I will say yeah. that, wow, I'm loving the fact that there really is, there is, if not integration, at least inclusion of the movies and the TV series and the comic books are all tying together. Yeah. So that thing we saw in Loki with the time variance authority and how they're trying to keep one, if you will, one true timeline to the universe. You can't, if there's going to be variants of loki every place and now we're finding out that he's not the only guy that might have variants and so what does it mean when you can have not only those i love the fact that i'm looking forward to seeing like in, in loki it was almost done a bit of it as a stunt here's the alligator loki here's the child right, loki, and right. that kind of stuff we'll see that the fact that one of those like in the movie theater one of the downsides of being in the movie theaters you can't pause it and say there's like a hundred on screen what does each of these look like? You got a metal suit, and that guy looks like wizardly robes, and that guy, well, woman. Just give <laughs> you know it. I mean? so. Just give it. What? What is it now? Two, three days. It'll be on Disney Plus. That's how fast no, it exactly. goes. And it, this is one of the ones that I real will rewatch because yeah. I want to see more. That I was overwhelmed by the spectacle, but I like the geekery of all the little bits too. Now, you know what I mean, speaking of. <laughs> That's one of the great things with this movie. There's new technology they used for this movie, and it might be the first one in the MCU or fairly early movies using this. But instead of a green screen that they're acting behind, it's like a surround screen that the, the that it's being 
projected on from the back. It's not filming from the front and then added later. So they're actually seeing and reacting to the special effects uh, beforehand. I don't know enough about the technology, but it's new and it made it look fantastic. It didn't look like we're in front of a green screen. (laughs) That's a great way to put it. Cameron obviously has pioneered that with the Avatar movies and other things. And I got a feeling that whoever his studio and Industrial Light and Magic and whoever, they are all pushing towards what you just said, that it's no longer here's a relatively static background that they're acting in front of and then we'll fill that in later. No, it really is that they're immersed in it. And it does, like the in Avatar, the way of water, the scenes where they're like underwater and flying through the air and all that kind of stuff. They really weren't just the hacky old 3D of, oh no, a spear is coming out of the screen at you. Instead it was, wow, this is really immersive. It really is real. (laughs) How did they do that? Another reason. Go to the theater. Yeah, um, yeah. And it didn't require 3D goggles. At least I didn't go to a show that required 3 I don't even know that it has variations on that. Does it have an IMAX version it, and it a does. 3D version? Okay. It does. I did go see it in 3D the second time. I saw it twice over the weekend. Okay. Because okay. I wanted to see 3D for the sole purpose that I want to support 3D to continue being in the theater. Okay. But I think our local theater either doesn't have as good of equipment or it's just the size of the screen. The 3D was not that impressive. I think if I went to Valley View, Cinemark, and had the 4,000-foot screen or whatever it is, uh, it may look different. I may actually do that. If I get some time over the weekend and they still have it, I may go see it in 3D up there just because I want to see what it looks like compared to my local. Yeah, I think Colleen is wonderfully game and tolerant of how I drag her to every one of the comic book movies, even if she's not the biggest comic book fan as I am. But that might be one of those things that I will do, like the one o'clock in the afternoon show, play hooky, and I'll be the guy with the goggles in the theater by myself. Because I I really didn't check into whether it had upgraded variations on it. And now that you've said how I thought it was already convincing and immersive in just regular movie version, the fact that 3D might even be better, I'm really curious about it now. I want to check okay. it out more because a couple times I took the glasses off just to see how look because you know they got the two images and it puts right. them together with the way the glasses are. So I took it off to look and I'm like, wow, like over half of this doesn't even look like it's separated into two images. But you could probably watch the whole 3D movie without 3D goggles and not get too thrown off. Okay. So that I was like, eh. but I remember like the Thor movie how right. much I love the 3D in that because, like you said, it's not the hokey things jumping out of the screen at you. Woo, look yeah. at that. It was more they focused on making it depth away from you instead of things jumping out of the screen. And that, I thought, mm-hmm. was fantastic. Yeah. And the Thor movie, I remember with Asgard, it just looked so so dense with everything. That's a great way to put it. Exactly. By the way, sorry about this. Can we pause for a moment? I really need to go multiverse it's a different owl i should have changed my shirt just to see if anybody noticed right right. so i actually wanted to jump back on something back on the kickstarter thing uh our typical let's go off on 20 tangents now i don't know if we've talked about this or if you heard but brandon sanderson the fantasy writer he did a kickstarter a while back now he's a very popular big name fantasy author I have many of his books. I really yes. like. Yes. Okay, and he did. He's traditionally published, but he has done some independent EPUB type stuff. 
he did a thing on Kickstarter. This was not new books. He took old books of his and was doing like new covers and new hardback versions, gold leaf, whatever. It was like a collector edition of a book he's already published and put out. He had four of them or something like that. And he, he was basically, I have control of these books and the stories. I can do whatever I want with them. I want to see what happens. This is for the fans. This isn't because I'm trying to get super rich or whatever. Okay. And he's really popular. And a lot of people already own these books, but he wanted to try out Kickstarter. So he put them up. I believe at the end of the month, it was like $6.4 million. Biggest Kickstarter ever. Wow. I'm really unaware of that. I really like his works, but I just, I hadn't been tracking on. And I, honestly, I don't know that I'm his best audience because now that I have all his books and I've read them all, I don't know that I need the new gold right. stuff like that. But I guess like when I bought, rebought albums because, hey, we got a whole nother CD worth of what was going on in the studio while we were creating Sunlight or something like that. Okay. So it was a great experiment. And I, I give kudos to Sanderson. Uh, he is one of the, and not the only, not the, there's a lot of authors that do this, but he is probably one of the biggest name authors that throws his weight around in support of smaller authors, independent authors. Um, He has, he did, he taught at Brigham Young university, some classes and he recorded all of them and put them on YouTube for free. Didn't charge people a course because people would pay money to get a course for Brandon Sanderson. It's free. I mean, it's 16 videos or something like that. Fantastic. uh, His class. I will go watch those. I didn't know those existed either. Yeah, I I am aware of so much stuff, but okay. And more recently, he was doing looking. He doesn't need to worry about how much he sells and all of that. He's got people that do it. Obviously, if you're going to sell four books that you've already sold and make six million dollars on it, that you're not worried about that. So he delved into audiobooks and not just hey, my agent and my company go put out the audiobooks and send me a check. He looked into it and said, you know what? Audible's practices are unfair. He's, they need, and he approached this. I don't think he just jumped into a lawsuit, but he threw his weight behind it to bring attention to it and say how it's unfair and tried to get people to go elsewhere and, you know, made Amazon look bad because okay. of their practices. And it helped everybody especially smaller independent people who never could have afforded fighting it. So the man isn't just existing and taking his money. And I'm not saying King and JK Rowling, that's all they do. And that's all they think about, but he really is making that extra effort to get out there and make the world a better place for the author community. I hear Uh, you. Uh, There's there's people that have fought that same fight. Robert Fripp fought, is it EG? Whatever he, for many years, had to fight about these practices are unfair and the divvy is not right, the disposal of the rights is not. And for a long time, he really did create Discipline Global Mobile to not have to participate in the concert scene, the music scene, and so forth. And so for a while, it took a while to to build that system. It was in the weeds, if you will. And yet the world has turned its face towards him now. So now he does indeed. He was wise. He did things like recorded every one of their concerts and had a good idea as to quality control, the direct from the soundboard recording and stuff like that, and 
by putting them out regularly from his own company, he said, we don't have to worry about only the concert venue making all the money or the concert promoter actually being the one that does it. We still have th this thing that we have the rights to. We'll put it out there for the fans. And it turns out there were lots of fans that were yeah. happy to see the show again, hear the show again, and stick it to the man, circumvent what all the things that were put in place to make sure that Fripp, being the one that created him and King Crimson, all these good things, it wasn't that they were getting the tiny sparrows share, that they were getting the right. eagles share. And Frank Zappa did that a lot, that he had, he started his own Barking Pumpkins records and it just got out of the studio system and would, would tell everybody, in fact, Steve Vai, in an interview, a fantastic guitarist, I love him, he said that he had worked in Zappa's bands a number of times, and so what'd you learn from Frank Zappa? And it wasn't really about musical technique, he was about, Zappa said, make sure you hold on to the rights to your music, the publishing rights, the everything, you know, there, there'll be a certain amount of concessions you have to make to the studio, to the record companies, but don't give away everything, and so there really are people, like Steve Vai, that once they have enough money that they can do whatever they want and they don't have to be, I owe somebody an album and I got to now I'm just kind of like trapped. I'm really talented, but I'm a slave still in, or at least a minor partner in how these deals have been cut. I love seeing people get to that of how did REM get to where they could say, Hey, we're going to put an album out and pay whatever you'd like to. That meant they, that they use their money to gain independence and then also show people the path to that independence. That's really cool another one was tom petty in the early 2000s he brought a lawsuit against amc i think the record company whatever that A&M, i think a&m &M is that yeah okay that they were still charging artists breakage fees for lps when they weren't shipping lps it was just <laughs> DVDs. yeah so he got that change so i like that if you're a small young band and you see this fee that's three percent what do you go do about it they're gonna say what do you want to do we did all the work you're famous too bad it right. takes these big guys that care to do right. something about it it i know i've read also tom petty was one of the guys that at one point he came to them this is not in 2000 it's like back in the 80s when he was quite popular and the, it's the album that has the song I Won't Back Down on it because that right. was exactly it. He would pretty much said, if you won't release this album exactly as I delivered it, then it's not going to get released. At like, that was a big thing to say. I'm willing to torpedo myself, tank my career. Once you start to get big enough that you get all those people that are going to give you notes as to how it could be improved upon. Well, I'm the taste master, not you, the artist. And there's some people that just know you're not. And I know that there's good collaborations. Clive Davies and Ahmet Erdogan are like renowned for having a golden ear, but the way that they do that is they identify this is really a good artist. They don't then take them under their wing and say, and now you'll be an extension of me. From what I understand, Mutt Lang was Svengali-ish, right, about Shania Twain and maybe about others. And so I, you don't know how much of that is the gossipy trade rag music stuff or how much of it really is. I like people that say, wow, I really like your work. How about if I take away real world concerns and let you create something beautiful instead of how about if I make you my my thing, an extension I, of my taste? I, I mean, I don't know <laughs> everything about Mutt Lang and how he worked and all that, but I know he worked with Leopard to get his Pyromanian Hysteria up and help. And yeah. they gush about him. Like he taught us 
how to think differently. He taught us how to do this. So it was so perfect. And I don't think it was ever, definitely he has that ear that says, these guys could have something good. I can help them get there. And okay. all the- and There are good collaborators. It's not only yes. Sven Gali or only leave them alone. There are some people, groups talk about that, that, you know, one of the reasons that we kept working with this producer was because he always brought out the best in us. He always challenged us that it was, and it wasn't, here's what I think roundabout should sound like. It's more right, like, wow, right. that's really great, but it could be even better. So he, yeah, they even say he was like the sixth Def Leppard, Martin or whatever was the fifth Beatle. Yeah. And Elton John and Bernie Toppin, that, that was a definite collaborator. You think of Elton John, but really if Elton John stuff, Bernie's just as big in there as Elton John is at certain points in his career. Yeah. The fact that it is Elton John's name on everything, but that Bernie, some most people who know anything about him know that it really was co-writing with Bernie Taupin and a lot of stuff. I just read something about that. Alan Parsons has just reissued on LP things that like a 10 record set, his first 10, and they were all very much collaborations with Eric Wolfson. And uh, again, Alan Parsons project, uh, Alan Parsons name, very well known. You have to know a little bit about his music and how it was done to know that really couldn't have come into existence without Wilson. And yet, I think that maybe that's one of the things that's going on is the reason they put out this box set is that it says that in the liner notes, the libretto. These are the albums that me and Eric created, and they deserve to get a perfect, stellar, golden box set treatment because I, oh, I, and it, I don't know, I, I, Boy, it's just nice to find out that people that are talented are also decent. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. What I mean? There's some good because ones. There are some people that, boy, they get so many people telling them how great they are that, yeah, they believe their own press, and then they think that means I can do and get away with anything. So how many rapist football players? I don't mean to immediately go to a crappy way of talking about it, but right. and that's a whole different world. The world that, of aggression in sports, it really does encourage you acting as if the world is at your feet. Maybe money does that in the music way or in the gaming way, for all I know. there's There are stories that any number of people, comedy people, that you think their opinions are, I don't think of them as being abusive or egotistical, but you find out that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And then when they have that opportunity to be the guy that can close the office door and and abuse their position, right. their position might be, it, I guess it's just that they're human. Some yeah. people are decent and will pave the way for others, and others will be like, as long as I have power over you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do wrong. These are the world. The so, yeah. Anyway. Lighten it up a little bit. The other yeah. aspect is sometimes you get these great, huge, big artists that are even more so than you realize. A good example is Prince. He had a successful career, had tons of successful albums and songs and top 40 and all that. But when you delve into it and find out all the songs he wrote for other people, it, it gets to be crazy. That's the true. big one I remember is Manic Monday for the Bengals. But every now and then you'll hear a song and find out that it was written by Prince for some country artist or some rap artist, not just a pop star. So he's another genius that did a whole lot music-wise that, heck, we may not even know. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of a variation on this. I wanted to mention this. So I went and saw, heard Paul, and it's Bialatovich. I hope I got his name correct, because I heard him say it out loud, and I was like, I got to remember that. He's <laughs> the guy that uh, 
in Carl Palmer's current band. They play Emerson, Lake, and Palmer music. And he, on guitar, plays Keith Emerson's keyboard parts. Which just saying that out loud is, what what are you talking about? That's impossible. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, he's an amazingly talented guitarist. And he, we went to see at Visible Voices Bookstore, maybe 40 seats in a little section of the store where he's a one-man band. He has all of his effects pedals and synthesizers and a theremin and everything else and videos of his various different collaborators. So it really was a six-piece. He had a bassist and a Chapman stickist and a drummer and a cellist and all that kind of stuff, and but all synchronized and put together so that he could play what he would propose as a soundtrack for the movie Nosferatu, which is like the original Dracula, but actually is a ripoff of the Dracula story that they actually had legal battles about how close it was to that. But it was a silent movie. Hey, <laughs> there wasn't one of these. And it was coming up on its 100th anniversary. And the way he explains it is because he was talking to us at dinner beforehand. We didn't have dinner with him. We were one table away. And so you start over here and you're like, oh, I hope you don't mind, but we're curious. Um, he talked about uh, during COVID, he had to shut down performing. And for any number of smaller artists, that's, wow, where's my money going to come from if I'm playing? Right. So he had established a Patreon thing where every week he would write a new song live and his Patreon fans, I was one of them, would be like, wow, this guy, he just, he's made a music. He just is so able to create things of beauty so interestingly and effortlessly. But there was a certain amount of, it wasn't, it was directionless. How many three minute perfect things do you have to have? So that's when he said, I could do a big overarching project. And that Nosferatu was his idea. So it was just very cool. And he is the kind of guy, and there's others, like you said, Prince had albums where he played everything on it. So has Michael Oldfield. So has Todd Rundgren. So has Thomas Dolby. There's people that just are able to do everything. They're creative music. And to be two feet away from them and see them doing that in live, in real time, it's, I just can't tell, I'm just smiling the whole show over he really can do this he really can keep track of complex orchestrated compositions and bring everything in he not only has he has some pre-recorded parts but he is continually playing live music over them and was having a great time while he was doing it you know what i mean he's smiling and he's loving that the audience is loving what he's doing and saying as well as play and just so hats off to that this world this new technology has enabled people to be a one-man band in a way that they're not Dick Van Dyke-wise wearing a symbol for a hat. And things. I, a, a highest recommendation for not only that, like Carl Palmer has a couple live things, and if you want to hear that phenomenon of someone able to play Great Gates of Kiev, classical pieces, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer pieces, I mean, Keith Emerson had five hands. How do you do that on guitar? <laughs> and yet he can. And so, wonderful, just wonderful. The thing with the silent movies, Reese and I reviewed a movie called The Phantom Carriage, which was a groundbreaking movie from like 1921 because mm-hmm. it, it had special effects movie overlays. It had this ghostly carriage that would go across the screen and you could see through it. Yeah, and it yeah. went across the, the first way time that was ever done. Yes. A film of any kind. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And uh, so I, a lot of those movies didn't have a set score. A lot of times in different cities, they would play different music. So, but even the would, organist at the theater would be playing the soundtrack. It was, yes. you know, yeah, yeah. And so there was a band that recorded an album to go with that movie for its 100th anniversary or something like that. And so when we were watching the movie, we chose one of the soundtracks to listen to 
to go with it that was different than the one that was in the movie we watched. So it, it was yeah. interesting how there's still people taking this heritage of these great movies. Yeah. Was the special effects great? <laughs> Not really. Was the story wonderful? <laughs> Not really. But it was a hundred years ago and it was a groundbreaking movie at the time. Exactly. So I like that some of these people are still doing this. And I think they actually, in some local areas from where they were, they had the movie shown at a theater and the band set up and played their soundtrack with it. Exactly. So that We've would have been that right here in Cleveland that the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra played like a whole bunch of Warner Brothers cartoons, the Bug Bunny cartoons. And so they really did play The Marriage of Figaro. They really did play the nice. William Bell Overture and stuff. And like in sync with the, there's no room for error. You got to right. get on that train and you got to play that piece perfectly or suddenly it's not in sync with what's going on on screen. Fantastic. Really well done. Yeah. And I love that they're just doing that type of stuff. I like old movies and stuff. So I like that we're keeping it around. Yeah. And I'll say this too. One of the things that Paul mentioned was he's doing a lot of house concerts where it really is like corporations or bookstores or people can say, hey, if I have two dozen friends over and we each pay you, I don't know, 20 bucks, that's 500 bucks. Would you do a show for us for 500 bucks? And if he's a one-man band, he needs like his equipment in a car and that kind of stuff. I, I don't know what the economies of the music business are, not at the stadium level, but at the touring musician level, puts together a tour of 10 of those and he's got $5,000 and a hundred of those, he's got 50,000. That would be a pretty good earning for a year. I, and he sells, of course, a little bit of merch here, some t-shirts and he didn't have recordings of this, but I'm sure that'll come out. So the, I am so amused. Our house is not necessarily set up for that, but I know, for instance, in most of the neighborhood in Cleveland, they have porch concerts where they regularly have local artists that just, they set up and they play for the yard full of people. And I don't know again what the economics of it are, but how cool that music is not only locked away and you have to get a ticket through Ticket Bastard, I'm sorry, Ticket Master, and et cetera, et cetera, that there really are still people that are like, sure, come on over. Levon Helm from the band who used to do, what do they call them? In a barn in Tennessee, rambles, rambles. And he just was like, whoever happened to stop by and be in town, right? play like all of a Saturday night, like really four, five, six hours. But then you get these collaborations of, I don't know, Levon Helm's pretty famous voice and great drumming and so forth. So maybe people from Little Feet would like to collaborate. Maybe Bonnie Raitt will show up. Maybe CSNY will show up. And right. they, I wish they would have been recording those because I'd have every one of a hundred. Right. I just want to hear what yeah. the people, amazingly talented people, when they're goofing off, are still making art. They're still making incredibly cool things. So I'm curious. Right. <laughs> you mentioned about that backyard thing. It only costs about $35,000 to hire MC Hammer to do your event. See, that's if you're a rich person, that's a birthday party. Yeah. <laughs> you know I, I was like, I would never pay $35,000 for one artist, but that right. is not stupid, crazy money that I just laugh at. I'm like, that's almost attainable. If I really tried, I could. Exactly. Yeah. We, we just saw Jerry Seinfeld at Playhouse Square. And again, I don't know how much it, um, how much he bills for, but what equipment does he need? A mic and a stool. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of other overhead on the part of the theater. And yet I think our tickets were like 70 bucks or something like that. So right. uh, a place of 5,000 people times 70, 
that's good wages. You know yeah. what I mean? What, how are the divvies of that? And I know that I, comedians often will talk about, it's not only those big venues that they get paid at. They do corporate shows. They do a lot of other things. And sometimes artists get chided about this. You vote with who you're willing to perform for. So if you're an environmentalist and Dow invites you to perform, you really might have a conflict of morals right. about that. Or if you're against apartheid and yet they're calling you to South Africa, you know what I'm trying to say. Right, yeah. the Arabian princes that are billions of dollars at a time, it's really hard to turn away a, a million dollar concert or something like that, unless you think that, oh, women are human beings and maybe I shouldn't go to a country where that's not the case. We well, talked about sellouts a couple weeks ago. That's more of a sellout than an artist making an album that sells a lot. Boy, that I, yes, you're exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> and. I know that I don't always mean to make some of this is not only gossipy. It really is. When you get power, what you just said, you can still help others to come up in all the ways we talked about earlier in our little chat. But it's also, if you're still in pursuit of money, like, I, I don't know, some people, they get themselves in trouble because they live large. They have a whole retinue that they pay for everybody that travels with them. And so since you mentioned MC Hammer, didn't he like burn through all of his money after the initial career burst? And so now it's like, how much are you really having to do certain things because you didn't sock it away and have a life of leisure for the right. rest of your life? You know that you shouldn't have to be doing IHOP commercials or something. If you love it, that's a different one of the I heard a little bit about some of the mistakes he made. And he wanted to be nice and have his family involved and help them out, but he like put people in charge of things they had no clue how to do and they weren't interested in doing correctly, and they were more interested in ah. Oh, He's a superstar and we're all now rich. And that was the end of right. it. We're all now rich. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the one thing was like a cousin wanted to do horse racing. So MC Hammer gave him like $6 million and the guy just went out and bought a bunch of horses, started a ranch. They raced for two seasons, didn't win a single race, wow. couldn't sell the horses and ended up $25 million in the hole. Right. It, there, there is still a reason that Surround yourself with competent people. Yes. <laughs> he would have been better off just handing that guy like $3 million and telling him to go enjoy it. Exactly that. You go ahead and piss this away, but at least you won't drag me further into the hole. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Which Hammer is an interesting choice too, because honestly, he seemed like the kind of guy that would have stuck around longer than he did. Even though it was rap, he seemed to be an artist that could flexible be more flexible and continue in the industry and mm -hmm. that just really didn't happen <laughs> yeah yeah but so what else do we have on our list today let's see we uh, we talked about ant-man we ah i'm really enjoying the last of us that's another thing that's big happening on hbo max i must admit i it's it, i really want to play the game and i'm gonna have i want to do something to break down and get myself like a real playstation or whatever the platform gaming is that i want to do but i'm really loving the story it's odd that because Walking Dead was so big and so popular and 10 seasons in, it's hard to have an idea about a post-apocalyptic world where in this case it's zombies not based on an infection but based on a fungus. But there's already very similar stories going on. Here's a little enclave of civilization, in this case up in Jackson, Wyoming, if I remember. Jackson, doesn't matter. I, it's not Jackson Hole. They call it Jackson. But I wish it wasn't already derivative or at least repetitive of other things, but it's hard to tell a fully new story. Acting is great. The characters are great, et cetera. But I'm getting this weird deja vu thing of 
because I've seen all The Walking Dead and various other of movies like this. When are you going to surprise me? Hmm. <laughs> I liked the first episode, and that's all I've watched so far is the first episode, so I'm okay. way behind. And when that came out, The Walking Dead, I'm not even sure if this show was on. I think it was just comic book. Okay. So, because it's PlayStation 3 originally, so I think it might be before the show started getting big and all that. And yeah, I think it's hard to do zombie a good zombie show that doesn't do some of the same stuff. And it was a video game, and Walking Dead was a comic. So I think it's interesting now to compare, like you said, the two as TV shows, what makes them good, what, and what would have been like if they had done this before The Walking Dead got big? Who knows? It may not have been as good because we weren't like spending as much money on good TV shows. (laughs) There's so many different variables. Exactly. There is what an interesting phenomenon that's been going on like pretty much all my life of, it used to be that something like a book existed as a book. And of course, it could be adapted into a movie or a TV show, but now it seems to be that there's an amazing universe of things that they say, well, this could also be a video game. This could also be a Broadway musical. You know what I mean? (laughs) That that someone has the vision and maybe the Machiavellian ability to say, we can keep repackaging this in various different ways to the public. And I, when I saw like Spamalot, the musical, I was like, please don't just be a ripoff. And it wasn't. It was really great Broadway musical quality while still being a loving homage to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And so I think some of that is, are the original people involved? If you're going to have a remake of the producers, having Mel Brooks involved is probably a good idea or whatever else it has been that way. We're about to go see Ghost the Musical, which is, oh, wow, I, that's, I hope that works. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I'm very, I like the movie a lot. And so what have they done? Some We've seen all different kinds of musicals that were jukebox musicals where they collect, oh, here, we're going to see Tina, which is all of Tina Turner's movie. We've seen The Temptations. We've seen Elvis, all that kind of stuff. But a new work that is a musical adaptation of something that before was only a drama. I'm always curious. I hope they can pull this off. I hope that they got people with the right sensibility that it's, identifiable as the original work it's just that people happen to sing <laughs> instead right. of right. the dialogue you know what i mean i'm digging that i'm digging that especially when there's things that i like i don't mind seeing kind of three four variations versions of a thing because each of them is their own it's its own thing sometimes <laughs> when i've seen it like we've talked about it you know, seeing a 3d movie where it's just 3d effects tacked on in the post-production it's just not as good as if someone was doing it from the start to do the right. field or to do the characters are, that's exactly what that character would sing if they were to break into song. Instead of it, forcing a dour character to sing a happy King Herod song or whatever else. It just reminds me of the Avengers musical they had in the ah. Hawkeye show. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. <laughs> that was, I, it was perfect. It was the exact perfect thing for that show. I love yeah. it. <laughs> That's, that Peacemaker was very funny in that the opening credits every single time were like, this really is like a whole dance routine. And they keep introducing each of the characters in the show. And I thought that, that was very tongue in cheek. But if you just take the irony out of it, this is still very entertaining. And yes. they're all brave. It isn't, I don't, it used to be that actors had to be threat they had to be able to sing and dance and ride a horse and shoot a gun and have a romantic scene and all that kind of stuff and we maybe we got away from that as people started to specialize 
But then you start to see people that really can do it all. And I, the Sammy Davis Juniors of the world, where it's like, wow, he really is amazingly talented in every way that the world would care to see. Uh, I was going to say, we may have talked about this. Who came up with that dance routine? Oh, yeah. You did tell me. It, it was us, Whedon? No, it was Alan Tudyk. That's who it was. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and he just happened to be on set because I think he was dating someone that was in the show and he was just on set. Right. I think Gunn said, we need an opening thing. You take care of it. And it really was just a happenstance. And it was so perfect. That so much better show than everybody so, thought. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't get enough of that for when I first saw it. I have to share this fun anecdote since I just mentioned Sammy Davis Jr., I once read that it used to be because a lot of, like I, I mentioned, they were in Westerns, they were in horses. Have you ever seen like Rio Bravo? Hey, well, there's Elaine Delon, there's Dean Martin, there's Robert Mitchum, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of people had a career in Westerns as well as a career in other tough guy movies or TV series or whatever else it might be. They used to have quick draw contests and Sammy Davis Jr. never lost. Apparently he was amazingly fast. <laughs> wow. you know, and I could see it. He's an amazingly coordinated guy and was always very witty in the Rat Pack scenes where it wasn't scripted, but it was just them riffing and stuff like that. And so hats off to Sam Davis Jr. for being like, he would have been the fastest gun in the West. That's pretty that cool. Real. Yeah. I'm not, not being a jerk about this. I wonder if his lazy eye actually helped with that because he didn't have to worry about the depth perception. He could just... <laughs> get monocular vision. Is yeah. You know, maybe it helped out. Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's funny you say that because we mentioned Prince a bit ago. I forget the band, but it was a band recording, and Prince was like in the next studio over, and they said during breaks they'd all go out and shoot hoops in the court. And they said Prince was phenomenal on the court, and he was a short dude. He was like five four, five five. He wore six inch high heels, and he would clean up the <laughs> the court with these guys playing basketball. That's pretty damn cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So that's a couple things I wanted to get to today. Yes. I've been on Moonjaro for a while since okay. we have talked in the past about diabetes and ways of handling that. And it's I've read a lot of press about Moonjaro because apparently it's really effective. It is becoming in short supply because people are using it as a weight loss drug. And I'll tell you, it really has worked for me. Not so much in terms of, oh, I lost this many pounds, but it's turned off my appetite. It really is an appetite suppressant. It has two components, one of which is to slow down your digestive system so you get to satiety and stay there for longer. But it's also just you don't have that as when you think your body needs to re-put energy in you. And I had not realized how much that was. People talk about, hey, what's the song in your head? People have like circus music always playing. My friend Kevin has that. When you turn something off that you've had all of your life, it's amazing to be like aware of the silence. Now it's like, when am I going to go to lunch? I'm not driven to be like, oh, I'm really hungry. And then sometimes my body will say, you really need whatever happens to be in sesame chicken. So go to the Asian place. You really need a fish sandwich and whatever it is, either it's the fish or it's the mayonnaise, the tartar sauce or whatever to be where I just don't have what I the desire to have, and not only the eat, but to let's eat a lot. It's so nice to have that turned off. And I've been really good at finding cheap things so that I could have a McChicken sandwich used to be a buck at McDonald's. 
wow, that plus a drink, I could get four McChickens and a drink for five bucks. And so somehow that satisfies my cheapness need. But who in the world needs to eat four McChicken sandwiches? And yet that was, I really wanted it. Because after two, I really wouldn't be done eating yet. Right. Now it's like down to two, down to one. And so it, man, I, is it great. <laughs> I haven't heard about Manjaro. Is it prescription over the counter? It's prescription only. Okay. It's one of those things that it's relatively new, so quite expensive. And I have, like for the first year, sponsorship from the manufacturer that, that I get it at a reasonable price. And reasonable is still like it's supposed to be. So I think I get it for 25 bucks for a month at a time. So in the course of the year, it's $300. And that's not nothing. But it's really like an $800 prescription. Wow. Like I, when I had to get my Jardians to go to Canada to get that price down from 800 to 900 to 300 that's what i'm willing to do as well but the other things have helped me metformin jardians they're really my walking more my, my watching what i'm eating i'm much more mr salads instead of mr pizza and stuff but this moonjaro is the first thing that i've ever had that really turned off in me the biggest problem which is the joy of eating i just love to eat there's never a time that i wasn't like i'm up for pizza and now it really is less of everything and not the like I said, the urges I used to get once I'm I really want chips and dip. And so I'm sure that that's the fat and the salt that is what that's all about. But man, you couldn't name a worse thing for spiking your A1C and your blood glucose like that. Well, and haven't wanted all kinds of former vices. Peanut M&Ms, couldn't care less. What? Wow. <laughs> wow. So just, I had my blood work done because I had to change, because of insurance, I had to change over to my old doctor, I went back to him and my A1C went from 6.4 to 6.0 this last time. Really? So I was very happy about that. Yeah. But how does, I guess for my understanding, how does turning off your wanting to eat help the blood sugar? Because if you go too low, if you don't eat, that's bad too. Yeah. See, funny, I've never suffered from that. I think I've mentioned before also that I have Freestyle Libra, which is, and you can't see, right. the little guy that I'm wearing currently, I don't always wear them, but I'm about to have my next visit with Cinema, that is the cross-discipline that UHS has set up for diabetes plus heart plus overall, I'm a big guy, obesity and stuff like that. And I put it on yesterday and I haven't had anything except everything in range the entire day. And in the past, it was like, if I'm going to eat popcorn, oh, might spike. If I'm going to eat, and sometimes at night it would drop because then when your body throws the insulin out there, it makes it go lower than it should. I've been absolutely within my like 75 to 200 band or whatever your blood glucose is supposed to be. And really kind of like not even spiking up and down, just like 130 all the time. Wow. So I, maybe it's this cocktail that's doing it. Maybe it's that I really have become quite disciplined in Let's have a bowl of mashed potatoes. No, nobody does that anymore. You've mentioned that, that really is the thing that is the torpedo. So <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm going to have give them like four weeks of data by the time I have my appointment. I really want to be able to account for the one time I really bought it was because I had pancakes or whatever else it might be. But I'm uh, eating less. It really is that I guess some of the things that I really had a yen for were some of the things that weren't always the best for me, like chips and dip. And now that it's like I have apples with a little bit of peanut butter. I have popcorn. Don't think popcorn is at really a high triggerer because it's so much fiber right. as well as carbs. It really is like the perfect snack 
maybe I have to worry a little bit about it if it's too salty, but we get like the smart pop where it really yeah. is lower in sodium and stuff like that. I'm enjoying that when I have, when I eat now, I really have choice instead of driven to what am I picturing that I need in my head and having to refuse that to myself. Sometimes the way you fall out of a diet is the deprivation, not the discipline. So I, this only, I'm one day on the, my little freestyle Libra, but I'm like, this is my third month of Munjaro. And they actually had me at a low dose to start with. I tolerated that well. So it went from 2.5 to 5 milligrams or micrograms or whatever else it might be. It's an injection. So that's its own kind of like, oh, I can do this at home. Funk. You do like belly, leg, and then repeat that cycle in a month. And it, it's never caused any weirdness like that. And I don't have a weirdness about needles, but I could see how somebody does that that would be a, a limitation. Yeah. And yet I, just the fact that I've never, ever had something that turned before I thought the way that you had to turn your appetite off was to take something that changed your metabolism and that you kind of vibrated the weight off i never wanted to be that'll kill my heart too that'll be i'm going to be sitting here constantly adrenalized or whatever the fight or flight is i have been pretty much living like i want to but with the addition of not being driven to have a specific thing especially anything that's bad for me oh wow hats hats off to Munjaro. here's hoping that as it like when my year runs out, will I have lost enough weight that I can go and be, now I'm less pounds and so diabetes doesn't affect me as much? Or do right. I now, now good, you got me addicted and now it's not 25 bucks a month, now it's $100 a month. Am I really going to stay on it? I'm going to have to see. It's hard to turn away from a miracle. Interesting. <laughs> All right, well, cool. All okay. right. I think we... I think we covered a lot finally we, we today. We it up as always. I am seeing Neil deGrasse Tyson tomorrow night, a lecture on what, when, how does science treat the movies. So I'm sure I'll have lots of grist for the mill based yes, on- Yes, that'll be are, awesome. Which is realistic and which is ridiculous and stuff like that. And he's, how cool there was the science hero. You know what? Maybe he's the current Carl Sagan. That is right. somebody that actually is knowledgeable enough and charming enough that people don't mind hearing the truth. <laughs> I, I'm curious to see if he mentions the Fast and the Furious Toyota in space. <laughs> that, that, I'm all for these big blow up movies with action scenes and stupid, crazy stunts and that. Okay, fine. But when you put a Toyota in space with a rocket and you hit the gas pedal to make it go and the steering wheel to fly, <laughs> even I had to roll my eyes at that one. If there's a chance for questions from the audience, I will be happy. <laughs> yes. say, Excuse me, Dr. Tyson. Yes. I just saw Fast and the Furious 9. And, yes. uh, I'd love to see if he actually has seen it and mentions it. Let exactly. me know. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right, man. All right. Take care, Stephen. Thanks you very too. much. This has been the Relentless Geekery Podcast. If you enjoy our conversation, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and go give us a review. Give us some likes. It would help a lot. Check out our website, RelentlessGeekery.com, where we have links to our Facebook page, Join the Conversation, and go check out our YouTube page, where we have the video of this and other episodes. You have been listening to the Relentless Geekery Podcast. Come back next week and join Alan and Stephen's conversation on Geek Topics of the Week. <laughs>